Hello, and welcome back, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Gabby. Today, we're excited to present our conversation with Cody Wenther, who's an assistant professor of pharmacy and the director of the first-of-its-kind Psychoactive Pharmaceutical Investigation Masters of Science program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Cody's also a member of the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association. We have a very insightful and resource-packed conversation to share with you all. We'll start by covering Cody's research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison on how small-scale molecule drugs affect long-term behavioral change. Then we'll discuss the details of the Psychoactive Pharmaceutical Investigation, MS, program. We'll also talk about how Cody got involved in psychedelic studies and his academic path that led him to the University of Wisconsin, where he is now. We'll also take a little bit of time to cover what the Psychedelic Pharmacist Association is, and then we'll close things up with some reflections and hopes for the future of the psychedelic field. All of the opinions given in this talk are Cody's and do not imply any endorsement by the University of Wisconsin. Before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, MAPS. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has allowed us to help keep the online psychedelic grad platform free for all of our members and allows us to publish these insightful conversations for everyone to enjoy. So without further hesitation, please enjoy our conversation with Cody Wenther. Thank you for joining me today, Cody. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to have you here. We've got lots of things to cover and discuss. You have quite the role at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, so I'd like to take some time to really impact some of those things that you do. But before we jump in too deep, let's start with your research. Do you mind taking a few minutes to describe what your research is and how that fits into the current psychedelic movement that we see ourselves in? Happy to. So, yeah, I have a research lab that is here at the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy, and our big questions that we like to ask are, how do small molecule drugs affect long-term behavioral change? And so that takes a couple different flavors. Some of the things that we're interested in, for example, are small molecule drugs of abuse, uh, where long-term behavioral changes can be profoundly negative, impacting people's lives in tragic ways, Uh, but also compounds like psychedelics, where as we're seeing, you know, more and more evidence that these compounds, even with a single use, can have profound long-lasting positive impacts on people's mental well-being. And so writ large, that's kind of the theme of my lab. And within that space, we have two uh, types of projects, I would say. The One type of project that we work on that's less relevant to psychedelics is development of uh, antibodies or vaccines against drugs of abuse. So we're trying to develop antibodies that stop these substances from getting into the brain and causing overdose, for example. That does intersect with psychedelics somewhat in that we have a project looking at using those antibodies to understand ketamine's function in the brain, not necessarily from an abuse perspective, but to try and understand whether we can pick out exactly which metabolites of ketamine are responsible for their their long-lasting antidepressant effects. 
And so that ketamine work segues into some of our more direct psychedelic work, which some of it is preclinical. For example, we have an ongoing project looking at the role of acute stress signaling and, and how it influences the response of mice to psychedelic compounds, particularly psilocybin although we're also looking at some analogs, and then also clinical work. So we were fortunate enough to get some funding independently to look at the intersection of self-identity with the environment, the psychedelic dosing environment, and how that affects outcomes. And we're excited to get that study going. But we're also part of a, a bigger collaboration looking at questions uh, like whether the memory of the psychedelic experience itself is necessary to derive therapeutic benefit. So that gives you, a, I think, a good sense of our pretty translational lab that we do work, you know, from, from molecules up to man. Yeah, that's a perfect overview. That really helps me understand it, especially as someone who's not involved in that kind of science. I do more social science work, but it's really cool to see a bit of overlap too between that research and, and my research. I'm interested in looking at the therapeutic benefits of recreational psychedelic use. I do it less from the neuro and pharmacological side and more from the situational context and environmental context. So it's really cool to see how, even though we're kind of in different realms of science, there's still a lot of overlap there. So very fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that I love about working um, in the psychedelic subfield is that there's so many opportunities to get outside your silo and talk to scholars and researchers who you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of impact or implications of the research that you're doing, what are the aims or the ultimate goals of some of the studies going on in your lab? Sure. I think overall, the, the goal of the studies in my lab um, are to understand the parameters by which we can maximize benefit and minimize harm from, from use of psychedelics in a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy context. And there's a few different ways in which these studies you know, impinge on that. I would say from the, the human side, I think there's a really interesting dichotomy, I would say, in the way that the role of stress is viewed in the psychedelic experience, where you know, traditional indigenous ceremonies in some contexts actually have an ordeologen type approach where individuals are going through a challenging experience. And part of that journey, the challenge is an implicit part of it. Whereas in some of the clinical literature, you'll see negative correlations, for example, between stressful experiences and particularly anxiety and therapeutic outcome. And so looking at, you know, the role of stress from a biological perspective, looking at cortisol release, for example, can, I think, help us understand the way in which biology and psychology intersect. And so I think that's a really important question because that could help establish, you know, what the role of a facilitator may look like, particularly in the context of a challenging experience. And then for the study looking at memory, which we call RECAP, thinking about the, the RECAP study, I think that's important because it's asks a pretty fundamental question that 
the psychedelic field is wrangling with. We have lots of good correlative data to show that the intensity of the experience and particular facets of the experience that can be called, you know, peak or mystical are associated with, with better outcomes. And that's pretty compelling. But also we know that higher doses of a drug are more likely to induce a mystical or peak experience. So we still haven't quite differentiated, right, whether it's just a pure dose-dependent effect or whether it's an experientially dependent effect. And so what our study is trying to do is to give people the psychedelic experience that they can report in real time to us using validated tools like the five-dimensional altered states of consciousness scale and other, you know, well-established tools that anyone, you know, who's read the literature will recognize. But then give the drug in combination with an amnestic dose, meaning a dose that makes you forget, an amnestic dose of midazolam, which is a benzodiazepine. And this is a dose similar to what someone would get for a colonoscopy, for example. So you go in, you get the procedure, you're awake, you're alert, you can respond. But by the time it's over, you go to your friend who's picking you up for the car ride, you know, and they say, how'd it go? And you say, how'd what go? Right. And so we will then probe their memory for the experience Initially, we're going to do this in, in healthy subjects to make sure that we can do this safely because these drugs um, haven't been administered together or the, the safety effects on that haven't been reported. But the next stage that we'd like to do is, is to recruit patients with depression to see whether there is a, a distinction between whether you can remember it or not. Perfect. That's a wonderful explanation. And it never really occurred to me before, but it really gets to that question of what is the role of the experience? Is that a vital part of changed behavior or changed outcomes in the end of taking a psychedelic, which is a creative and interesting way of answering that question? I really like that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, and I'm not going to take full credit for that whole study design. There's a great team of researchers here at UW, including Chuck Razan, Paul Hudson, Randy Brown, Matt Banks, Christopher Nicholas, John Dunn, and Rick Leonards, who, who are all also involved in this. So again, that, that's one of the great things about psychedelic research is you can ask really fascinating questions and bring a lot of different areas of expertise to bear. So always great. Absolutely. All right. Let's speak more specifically about this new program that's coming to University of Wisconsin-Madison, the Psychoactive Pharmaceutical Investigation Master of Science program. You came to Psychedelic Grad and actually reached out to us and asked us to share some of this information with our listeners. So I'm sure some of them have come in contact with this program, are interested in learning a little bit more. So we know that this program is starting in the fall, the first cohort of students will be starting in the fall. Do you want to take a minute to explain what the program is for any of our listeners that haven't heard of it yet? Sure. First, I would just want to say thanks to Psychedelic Grad for helping support get the word out about this first of its kind program. It seems like it's a you know shared mission between both of us. So deeply appreciative of that. As far as the program itself, I'm happy to give some details. So the program is, as you mentioned, starting up in fall of 2021 and enrolling every semester thereafter. And it is 
functionally and legally a master's degree in pharmaceutical sciences with a programmatic focus on psychoactive pharmaceutical investigation. And so the curriculum is designed to give individuals exposure to both the fundamentals of um, general pharmaceutical science work for someone who's going to become a researcher or a scientist at the master's level. This could be in industry, it could be in a not-for-profit, it could be in a governmental capacity. So coursework, such as the courses that I teach, looking at the design, action, and application of CNS active drugs, coursework looking at how to work in a regulated environment. These things are part of the program, but then that's also delivered alongside very specific content bespoke generated for individuals interested in psychedelic drug research. So there's courses like psychedelics in science and society. We also have a course on cannabinoids in science and society and coursework looking at the legal structures of controlled substances, looking at drug history, electives on psychedelic history specifically, ethnobotany, and courses on ethical behavior, because this is a vital, I think, discussion that needs to be had by everyone, and probably particularly those individuals who are looking to enter the, the psychedelic research or biotech space because of the fraught nature of potentially sort of exploitative use of indigenous and traditional knowledge. And so we're committed to de developing and delivering a program that combines chemistry, culture, equity, ethnobotany, and really leveraging that interdisciplinary strength that we've got here at UW-Madison. I will also say there's a capstone certificate that's also available. So the master's program is a 31 credit program. And I should mention it can be completed entirely online. That's really important to us. People from across the globe can access this program and you know, get the first accredited degree focused on psychedelic work. The, the capstone certificate likewise can be completed entirely online, but it's uh, just 12 credits and it focuses more closely on those uh, historical, humanistic and clinical applications pieces in contrast to some of the more uh, drug discovery and project management domains that would be especially important for, for folks um, who are new to the the pharmaceutical industry. We think the capstone certificate would be pretty appealing for individuals looking to take on other roles that may be more clinically oriented, more regulatory oriented, more policy oriented, or for individuals who've been in the pharmaceutical industry but want to gain domain-specific knowledge about the psychedelic space that they may, you know, almost certainly hadn't encountered in their previous educational experience. That was a wonderful description. Thank you for that. I think something that's really important to point out is not only is this program the first of its kind, but hearing more about it from you here and now, it really, I think it really sets a precedent for other programs that might come after this, this holistic perspective of integrating not just the pharmacology and, and the chemistry and ethnobotany, but bringing in history and culture is something that is not typically done in really any field of study that I've much encountered besides maybe anthropology. This is really setting a precedent and it's very exciting. So I really hope that other 
institutions that are interested in starting programs like this look to this program as a model for developing future programs. This is wonderful to hear. And it's really exciting too, because it sounds like this program provides kind of a home and a space for students that are interested in pharmacology, but feel like maybe there isn't anywhere to go to learn, like you said, the specific domain of psychedelics in pharmacology, which gives it a whole nother layer of importance and value. I'm really excited to see how the students go through the program and how they come out of the program. And you did a wonderful job explaining who might be interested in this program, but also what you can do once the the program's over and you have that extra degree or that certificate. I think that really helps make that connection for people. One of the biggest questions I get from family and friends are like, what are you going to do with your degree when you're done? And I think you paint a very good picture for students of what am I going to do with this degree when I'm done? They have an idea. You're helping them kind of paint that roadmap for themselves where they can envision themselves when they finish that that program. That was a wonderful job. Thank you, Cody, for that. Thank you for your vote of confidence and your support. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think listeners might be interested in how did this program come about with being the first of its kind? Was this something that's been a a dream of someone for years? Was it brought up in conversation? How does a program like this come to be? So I think the genesis of this program really did spring from the psychedelic research that was already ongoing at UW-Madison. So some listeners you know, might not be aware that University of Wisconsin has been involved in psychedelic research um, for quite a long time, including the phase one pharmacokinetic trials of psilocybin, so some of the earliest phased clinical work, as well as being a you know, site for the MAPS phase two and phase three trials, a site for SIL-201, which is USONA's phase two trial. And so we've got this expertise, you know, both on the clinical trial side, but as I mentioned, also have investigator-initiated studies. Randy Brown, for example, has a study looking at use of psilocybin plus buprenorphine in opioid replacement therapy in the context of opioid use disorder. There's new studies coming online looking at methamphetamine use. And so there was a nexus of, of knowledge here, and there was an interest in trying to deliver that knowledge beyond the walls of UW. And so when we sat down and thought about what a program might look like, I had the idea that the School of Pharmacy would be a great home for this because we've been generating pharmaceutical sciences graduates very successfully, you know, for over a hundred years. And we also have a deep history of innovation in pharmaceutical education. So the first bachelor's degree in pharmacy was awarded by the University of Wisconsin. The first history of pharmacy courses were given by the University of Wisconsin. Some of the very first pharmaceutical sciences PhDs in the United States were awarded by the University of Wisconsin. So culturally, it was a natural fit for us to be educational innovators. And topically, we had assembled a great deal of coursework and expertise on the clinical side as we've been training pharmacists likewise for for more than 100 years probably 130 years and had a 
cohort of people across campus, including the Center for Healthy Minds, uh, including folks at the College of Agricultural and Life Sciences who understand the uh, life cycle of these plants and their industrial and agricultural use, just felt like the right time to deliver this. And I'm serving as the founding director. I kind of did a little bit of the herding of cats in order to get this off the ground, but we were fortunate enough to get the support of administration who saw the the growth in this area and the need, the real scalability challenge that's facing us in the event that these compounds continue to perform clinically in the way that they have to date. I had no idea that University of Wisconsin had such a extensive history. So it's really interesting. And it's really wonderful to hear that the administrators of the university are so supportive of the development of such a groundbreaking uh, program. It's hard to make advances in psychedelic studies if you don't have that administrative support and that administrative approval. Yeah. And I think for the master's program in particular, right, education is one of the main missions of of the university. And speaking of Wisconsin traditions, there's a very famous Wisconsin tradition called the Wisconsin Idea, which is that the benefits of the university should be not limited by the borders of campus, but should be found by the citizens of the entire state and indeed the globe. And so we think this is a really important piece of outreach and in keeping with those philosophical traditions. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really hope other universities jump on this bandwagon because this is a really fantastic program. And I'm I'm really hoping to see other programs with such a holistic kind of perspective follow suit. I think that'd be really important. And for any students or any listeners who might be interested to learn more about this program, where or how can they get more information? I think there's two major ways that students can learn more about the program. The first is through our Division of Continuing Studies Professional Degrees and Certificates program. Their website is pdc.wisc.edu, and that'll show you all the options that are available, including both our master's and our capstone certificate. Or you can go directly to pharmacy.wisc.edu, which will take you to a landing page where you can see all the programs within the School of Pharmacy, including the Psychoactive Pharmaceutical Investigation MS and Capstone program. Once they've reached out, if the program looks to be of interest, we do have enrollment coaches available and outreach specialists to talk through the qualifications that we're looking for in students and the nuts and bolts of how to apply. And so we're happy uh, and interested to work with students on how to get in the program. We've had a very robust response, perhaps even more than we anticipated, which is wonderful. But we want to be in a dialogue, right, with every student to understand what they're trying to get out of the program, what's, what's of interest to them, and what's their background. Because we are getting a lot of students from non-science focused backgrounds who nevertheless, you know, are wanting to make kind of a transition into this more science focused space. And so we're happy to talk with them about how they can better prepare or get a little bit of additional background in the science areas so that they are going to succeed in the program. Because ultimately that's, that's what we want is every student to be a success story and to be matched with the opportunity and the career that they, they want. Thank you for those resources, Cody. And for our listeners, I'll be sure to include those links in the podcast notes in case you didn't catch them. You can check them out below. 
Oh, right. That was a really wonderful discussion about your research and the program. I want to take some time to dig a little deeper into how you came into psychedelic studies and your background. So let's explore a little bit more about what made you want to become involved in psychedelic studies and the particular research that you do in the field of pharmacology. Yeah, I was interested in becoming a a scientist starting in high school. I think that's where the the bug kind of bit me. The the idea of developing new drugs was very exciting to me. Neither of my parents got a four-year degree, but I was always a pretty academically oriented kid, and we were uh, fortunate enough to even have an organic chemistry uh, course at my high school. And so that was really exciting to me the idea that you could make an impact on the world. And growing up in Wisconsin, this isn't unique, but we do have a strong drinking culture in this state. And there are positive pro-social elements in some cases, but there's also a huge burden of alcoholism and deaths from impaired driving and things like that. And I was seeing that at the time and it's knock on effects with suicidality, for example. And so I thought, you know, I like chemistry. How can I make an impact with it? And and finding new drugs for psychiatric indications seemed to be kind of an ideal path for me. I wasn't as smart as I thought I was because when I was applying to colleges, I looked for programs that had really strong chemical engineering programs because I was naive and thought, that meant I was going to be engineering chemicals. Turns out that's not right. But I was fortunate enough to have someone very quickly point me across the street and say, look at that building. That's the pharmacy building. They have a medicinal chemistry program and molecular pharmacology program over there. That's what they do. Go talk to them. So I did. Got really interested. Got perhaps even a little bit further sidetracked. <laughs> By Francis Collins' interest in in the time he was directing NIH, his interest in establishing and expanding the pool of translational researchers caught my ear. I thought that's cool. I would love it if I could, you know, have not just a bench practice, but be applying these drugs uh, in clinical settings and have the clinical training to to work with real people. And so I got my PharmD at Purdue and was fortunate enough to be taught by a lot of wonderful uh, professors there, including David Nichols, who was a longtime, of course, medicinal chemist doing work on psychedelics. I never did get into his lab at Purdue. I did a lot of lab work there, but I think I didn't meet the grade for seriousness because I was I was a lowly uh, PharmD student and not a PhD student. But he never said that. That was my my interpretation. But I thought the work they were doing was really fascinating. And I was uh, able to get into labs, including the Barker lab there, looking at structure activity relationships of the serotonin transporter. That's where I got my first publication was as a PharmD student working with them on the serotonin transporter. And I spent some time in the library there in Heine Hall, where they'd amassed a pretty great collection of psychedelic literature. Really enjoyed working through that. And then decided after I got my degree and I was going on to, to graduate school. 
which was the path all along. It just took me, you know, another degree to get there. So now, right, I'm there. I'm ready to do to do the PhD. And I was kind of between UNC and Vanderbilt when it came down to it. Um, talked to Brian Roth at the time. Eventually ended up at Vanderbilt with Craig Lindsley and Jeff Kahn because they had established the Center for Neuroscience Drug Discovery. And it was a really cool, new, interesting model to me. I'd seen and heard of the the exodus of companies, big pharma particularly, from the CNS space, that investments in psychiatric illnesses, you know, psychiatric drugs were, were declining and they were divesting entire branches, right? Laying people off saying, it's too hard. We're not going to do it. Risk is too high. And seeing this team of individuals across medchem, pharmacology, PK, behavior, and ultimately now they're in clinical trials even, seeing them work together really convinced me that that was the right place to go. Because I, I love the idea of people with diverse expertise coming to, to address this sort of systematic problem in, in the drug discovery realm for psychiatric disorders. And I was fortunate enough to work on some um, great projects looking at the metabotropic glutamate receptor. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but really important for manipulating plasticity, the connections between neurons and learning behavior. And so as someone who is interested in how molecules change behavior long-term, this was a great, great place for me to land. Interestingly, the specific targets I was working on, mglu 3 and mglu 2 have pretty interesting heterodimerization with 5-HT2A. So any of the pharmacology people who are listening right now can see how that ties back in potentially to my interest in psychedelics, right? So throughout this period, I'm kind of flirting with the psychedelic space, but really gaining fundamental understanding of small molecule design and deployment and behavior in psychiatric pharmacology. And I went on to do a postdoc to get a little bit more expertise. That's where I, I brought in the the addiction vaccine piece. Kim Janda at the Scripps Research Institute has been working on this for decades, one of the leaders in the field. Fortunate enough to work with him and gain that additional understanding particularly of biologics. It's a huge growth area and was was a very intriguing approach to me and really helped me understand kind of how pharmacokinetic approaches, meaning those that change where drugs are in the body, could be married to pharmacodynamic approaches, meaning how the drug affects the, the body in order to have a kind of more integrated uh, approach. And then it was time to go back home. I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I grew up in Wisconsin. And so uh, applied to a lot of places for, for getting a faculty job. And UW was my number one choice. Hep was thrilled to land it for all the, all the reasons that we just mentioned and sat down my first week with with Paul Hudson, and we had a talk about you know what sort of drove me, and and I remember talking to him about you know I want to 
understand how psychoactive molecules modify behavior. That's really what my lab is all about. And I've been, you know, sort of reading about psychedelics for a while, been getting the tools to try and apply all these different techniques I've gained, got the ability to ask relevant questions, but now I'm in the right place, right? I want to join the team, the psychedelic team, and and get on board. And and of course, he and everyone else I mentioned earlier were extremely gracious, and I felt like I was folded in pretty quickly and got some support from NIH. We got an RO1 on ketamine and understanding its mechanism as a rapidly acting antidepressant, which I think was obviously a huge boon and fits in very nicely with our psychedelic work. And then was fortunate enough to get support from Worf, which sounds like someone from Star Trek, but is really the name of our Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. And the namesake FYI of the drug warfarin back, which was patented by UW researcher, you know, more than a century and a half ago to, to continue work explicitly in the psychedelic space with the study that I call Poesis, which is that study that I think tickled your fancy, which was looking at sort of the intersection of self-identity, environment, and, and success. So I think that brings us almost to the current day. <laughs> Yeah, I think it does. I like the way you pieced it all together. And it's really cool to see how throughout your journey, you've picked up different skills and techniques and and little pieces here and there. And then really everything just came together and all of your interests came together and everything really fell into place. I have a couple clarification questions. I don't have much of a background in pharmacology. So you talk about a PharmD versus a PhD. What is the most common track to go from, if you're someone who's interested in studying pharmacology, what's the typical track to get to the PhD? In doing my research for this conversation, I thought the PharmD was a PhD, and then you talked about it, and I was like, these are two different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great clarifying question, and and sorry for kind of uh, glossing over that. So yeah, the typical track for someone who wants to become a research pharmacologist, you know, scientist working on the pharmacology of drug action is to get a bachelor's in biology and or chemistry or a related scientific discipline. Some students will get a a bachelor's in pharm tox, for example, which stands for pharmacology and toxicology, and then go on to get uh, the PhD, which is a research-focused degree. The distinction in my case, and in the cases of some others, is the PharmD it stands for doctor of pharmacy and it's akin to the md degree for a doctor of medicine so if you're an md you're a clinical doctor right working with patients if you're a pharmd you're a, you're a clinical pharmacist uh, working with patients in the role of a pharmacist and so that really is a clinically focused degree rather than a research focused degree of my class of 150 approximately there are maybe two other students who are interested in research. Most of them are working as clinical pharmacists these days or, you know, doing other jobs. Some of them got a dual degree with an MBA, for example, and are working as sort of clinical trial managers and project um, coordinators in in pharma. But that's that's the distinction there is that the PharmD is clinically focused, the PhD is research focused. And having those two is where I wanted to be to become a translational researcher, right? Because then you can do work across those domains. 
Perfect. That was a great explanation, especially like for in, in anthropology. We have a lot of people that come in from different fields, but ultimately, if you want to go into academia, you go get the PhD, right? If you want to do more research, you can do the master's. You don't necessarily have to do the PhD, but there aren't like separate kind of domains to go about it. You kind of just follow the track up until the point when you decide you're done, you know? Right. Um, right. So that was a wonderful clarification to understand what the process looks like. So thank you for that. I guess I would just say for interested students, you don't have to do both, right? Can you go right from an undergrad to a PhD? Is that possible? That, that's possible and, and actually common in our field. So usually there are institutions that will award an MS on the way to the PhD, but the general track is a BS and then your subsequent degree will be a PhD. I want to talk a little bit more about your fellowship at the Scripps Research Institute in the Department of Chemistry. With other guests that we've had on the podcast so far, we haven't had anyone that's actually made it past the PhD point or who has had a fellowship. So I think some of our listeners would gain some really valuable insight from you. If you can talk more about the fellowship process, why would someone pursue a fellowship? How do you go about finding a fellowship? What does that process look like? So I was interested in academia, right? That was kind of where I made that decision, though, academic drug discovery. I wanted to stay in academia. I thought it was cool to be my own boss, have my own lab, and so far, so good. But in sciences, in in pharmacology and in chemistry, to become a faculty member most commonly and I would say overwhelmingly, individuals will go pursue what's called a a postdoc, so postdoctoral research experience. And that's a a bit of a matching process. So you talk to your PhD mentor, right, who's been working with you for the last four, five, six, hopefully not more, but, you know, there are cases longer than that, years. And you've gotten really to know your area. You've gotten really good skills in the work that you've been doing. And the the point of the postdoc is to match you up with someone who can expand your skill set, right? So you can learn some new techniques, get publications in a different area, and frankly, really gain that ability to synthesize information that you pointed out. I think that was one of the biggest skills that I got from the postdoctoral research experiences. I've gotten used to sort of reading, you know, in my own project, in my own domain. I was feeling very comfortable with it. But then with the postdoc, you're going through this match process to find a lab where um, they're doing work that's a little different. And now you have to switch gears. And you're a doctor, right? You're a PhD. So you know what you're doing in their mind. And so you've got to be ready to digest, understand, read the literature, get up to speed quickly get to the bench, use your hands and be productive while at the same time trying to bring knowledge and insights from your previous domain, which they may not have experience in, right? So in some ways, you know, it's a matchmaking process, but it's also a hybridization process. And I think that that was hugely beneficial to me. And I think for lots of postdocs, that that's when you get real experience in coming up with your own projects, right? You may have had small ideas before or even, you know, big ideas, but you may not have had a project kind of de novo. And I was 
lucky enough to uh, be able to write a fellowship proposal to NIDA, which was funded, which is how, how I got funded as a fellow, a postdoctoral fellow. That was following on training grant funding that I was able to secure at the PhD level. And so for anyone who's interested in going down an academic path in kind of biomedical research, that's a suggestion that's easier said than done, right, is develop a track record of funding support through training grants or fellowships or even small internal competitions at every stage that you can because it it not only looks good, but it also is material financial support for your work. And probably most importantly, it forces you to sit down and write up your own ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I will second that as someone who has spent several months at this point applying for several grants for my dissertation research. That last point is really key, sitting down and putting your ideas on paper and refining them over and over and over again until in the end you have a manageable, very specific and defined project. It's like you said, it's much harder said than done. (laughs) And with every grant that I do, I realize, oh man, the grant for that was not even close to as good as this one. And then I do another one and I'm just like, oh, this one's even better. Despite the number of rejection letters you get sometimes, it's a really important exercise for working through your thoughts and getting down to those nitty gritty details and being able really to justify your research as well and not just say what you're going to do, but why you need to do it and why it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that's tough at this stage is now I have students writing their own fellowships and they say, oh, Cody, you were funded. I'm sure you have an example of a fellowship that you can show me. And you go back and look at it. And just like you said, it's like, oh, this grant is garbage. I'm so much better at this now. Although I look at some of my current grants and I go, am I really much better? But that's part of the process of getting those rejections is you'll question uh, yourself, but keep the faith, work hard, and you'll also have those moments of joy when you, you get the money and you are off and running on your own idea, right? You, you had an idea, you put it out into the world, and someone bet on you that you could make it a reality. What an amazing feeling. Yeah. I'm still waiting for that moment, but I'm sure. You'll get there, I'm sure. (laughs) Throughout your journey to where you are now at at UW, were there any challenges that you faced, maybe in trying to find a program or advisor or trying to find academic support or any type of challenges? What were they and, and how did you manage to overcome them? I think one of the challenges for me initially was finding time to, maybe not so much time, as finding the the means to pursue my passion, which was research, while also trying to graduate. I was lucky enough to get, you know, some scholarship support, but it was eventually taking on loans, which meant that I had to go to my advisor and say, I can't take research credit this semester. I, I, if possible, I need you to pay me to be in the lab, right? Because I need to pay my rent kind of thing. And so I think finding ways to have the research support me early on 
was challenging because there were people for whom, you know, that, that wasn't a question that didn't need to be asked, but I guess it's gotten me used to the idea of asking for money to support my science from now on. So that's nice. And I think the other thing that was challenging that, that I alluded to was I was really, you know, sort of interested in psychedelics, but it had to be kind of a peripheral interest just because there wasn't a ton of bandwidth, right? Even being at an institution where there was a bona fide psychedelic researcher, he had X number of slots in his lab, X number of students. And, you know, if you weren't there at the right time, what have you, there's nothing anyone can do, right? To suddenly make more space. So I think that's a challenge. And I think it it's still a challenge. I think it's changing. But the lesson that I took from that was there are f- fundamental skills, you know, ideas, practices that you will need to have in order to eventually become someone researching psychedelics. And so don't despair that you're not doing it at this very moment and, and recognize what skills you can gain at the time and, and get them. And actually, at the end of the day, I think it was probably really helpful to do that because it forced me to do that synthesis. It forced me to do some independent thinking um, about what would a project look like if I had the opportunity to pursue it. What would be the first question I would ask? What's the first experiment I would run? And so I, I think that was both challenging but beneficial. Perfect. Thanks. We talked about challenges and you may have answered this a little bit already, but were there any particular resources that you think were the most helpful for you as you worked your way through your academic path? Yeah, I think the first one was getting a scholarship. I think that was foundational. And I've brought that philosophy with me to my position as director of our program. Uh, So we have scholarship opportunities available, both need-based and based on trying to support diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think it's really important that people who may not see themselves uh, in the role of a scientist or that they might not think they have the resources to make the leap into graduate school, that we as a group in higher ed do what we can to make accessibility an option for for everyone. So I think that was the first thing is if I can't afford to go to college, I wouldn't be here now and I wouldn't have been able to afford it without a scholarship. And I think the other resource that's completely opaque And I can't give you good advice on how to achieve this, but that is critical when moving through your path as a scientist is, or in any career, is recognizing good informal mentorship. You'll have formal mentors. They need to be good. 
there's ways, right, that you can figure out whether they're good. If you're lucky, you'll have some rotation experiences. You'll be able to check out a few different areas. You'll get a sense of whether you have a fit. They can look at what the outcomes of their students were in the past. There's metrics, right, that you can use to assess whether that's going to go well. But then there are people who show up, right, maybe repeatedly, maybe just once or twice, and you ask them the right question at the right time, and they set you off in a direction or give you a tip that you never would have gotten from the formal process just because their experience is so different. And so keeping your you know, mind open, your ears open, and probably most importantly, being willing to take that scary leap and ask a question at a seminar, go up afterwards and talk to someone who seems, you know, way beyond kind of you, maybe in an area you're not even familiar with. Being willing to have the courage to do that, I've found has resulted in those sparks, those connections far more often than it's resulted in embarrassment or abject failure. (laughs) Sometimes you feel like, oh, that was a silly question, but you still learn something, right? And sometimes you get an insight that drives the rest of your career. Yeah, I would definitely second that. That's a wonderful piece of advice that I hope our listeners really grasp onto. I have had very similar experiences where my entire trajectory of my academic career has been shifted by one five-minute conversation with someone who I never spoke to again. So like you said, keeping your eyes and ears out for those moments can be really important and valuable. So I think that's a wonderful piece of, of advice for our listeners. Before we start wrapping things up, I want to talk about the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association. For me, this is an organization I've never heard of before, and I'm sure some of our listeners have not either, although some of them may have. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association? I can tell you a little bit more about it. I can't tell you a great deal bit more about it. What I can tell you about the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association is it's a relatively new group, which is probably why you haven't heard of it. It's still assembling. There are leaders in the the group that have put it together and are basically generating the framework of what the scope of this is going to be. But it's a professional society of pharmacists. It's not a formal professional society in the way that, for example, Society for Neuroscience is. At present, there are no dues. You can become a member and it has a LinkedIn page. I think the website is is up and coming. Right now, it's serving as a nexus, as a space for pharmacists who are interested in Uh, expanding their practice and incorporating psychedelic knowledge uh, into their daily work. And I think this is a really important thing to do across professions. There's going to be new roles for a lot of people if the FDA approves psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And there are professions like pharmacy who've long been wanting to work at the top of their license. So 
you're getting a doctoral level degree. Many pharmacists will go on to get a residency, either one or two years of residency after that doctoral degree. And then some will be board certified, for example, in psychiatric pharmacy. And so we're talking about people who are extremely well-trained and often working in patient hospital settings, top of their license, very difficult cases, and as part of an interdisciplinary team. But not every pharmacist, you know, has the opportunity to work at the top of their license. And with the looming scalability challenge that that will occur if psychedelics are, are FDA approved for facilitators, guides, even just infrastructure, spaces, right? Pharmacists are one of the most accessible healthcare providers. They've long been one of the most trusted. As we know, trust is a bedrock foundation of work with psychedelics. I think there's enormous opportunity here. And so I think I've lost the thread a little bit of of your question, but what I'm trying to say here is that associations like this function to bring together like-minded individuals and serve as a way to advocate as well as brainstorm about what the future might look like. I think that was well said. And for our listeners, especially with this being a very new organization, this is a really good time to get involved and have your ideas be a part of this organization as it starts to form and be part of that growth. And that's really exciting, especially the part where there's no dues yet. When you get into more formal organizations, you have dues and then it gets a little bit more expensive. So being a part of it before it becomes formal and really being part of the foundation of what that organization becomes later is really important. It can be really fun um, and inspiring too. You mentioned that they have a LinkedIn page For our listeners, I can put that link to the LinkedIn page in the uh, podcast notes. That way, if you're interested, you can check it out. And then hopefully once their website is up, they'll make a formal announcement about that and you can get on their website and learn even more about them. Yeah, The other thing that I would mention about the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association is they're one of several sponsors for the SANA Symposium, which is a, a psychedelic symposium for healthcare professionals and, and education. And so that's one of the other things that this association is doing is uh, serving as a way to, to hook pharmacists into the rest of the mental health care space as it relates to use of psychedelics, which really can't reiterate enough that team-based healthcare is already super important, but is going to be indispensable, I think, with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. That's a really good point. Thank you for adding that. I think it's also important to note, too, that those types of sponsorships and relationships between various organizations and events and symposiums and conferences is a really good way to network and connect and build professional development skills and networks. So I think that's a really important resource for any of our listeners that are interested in growing their networks or building professional development skills. We're going to go ahead and start wrapping things up. At the end of our podcast, we always like to ask questions about where you see the future of psychedelics and psychedelic studies going. So thinking about the next five to 10 years, 
what are your hopes for the future of the psychedelic field and how do you see yourself fitting into that future? Yeah, I think I have two big hopes. One clinical, which is I hope that psychedelics and more broadly psychedelic assisted psychotherapy models and and frankly just integrative care models that use drugs to support self knowledge and holistic wellness in the mental health care space i hope that we achieve that vision i hope they live up to their promise because we do have a epidemic of mental distress in this country and something has to give and so most broadly of course i hope that we begin to chip away at the stigma associated with mental illness and expand access to mental health care and i think this this moment and this class of medicines is particularly well suited to spark change because it demands it in the sense that it's a very different model than many of the other ways we've been delivering care in a more narrow sense scientifically i am as i said fascinated by the the idea that this tiny molecule right can get into your brain and change the course of your life and so i think one of the things that psychedelics have the potential to help us understand is how molecules interact with receptors, build into circuit level changes, and help us develop new patterns of learning, help us get out of old patterns of behavior. And so understanding how that's happening at the the mechanistic level, what it is about that structure that's driving plastic outcomes, the ability of your brain to change in the face of new information, I think has pretty profound implications beyond the scope of the applications we're using today and will help teach us a lot about how our brains learn and how we change over a lifetime, even in the absence of psychedelics, because we're learning, we're changing all the time. And it's amazing that these molecules can induce such a profoundly different state and accelerate that that pace of change but it's also amazing that we have that capacity to to grow change learn uh, period and so understanding more about that process is it's just fundamentally interesting to me right and i think can be beneficial for a lot of people yeah i absolutely agree with that for me thinking about the future of just the way that psychedelics can make us rethink how they interact with the brain and how they change the brain. It opens up a whole new door, even beyond psychedelics, to just learn more about the brain and the human body. And there's so many frontiers here besides just the psychedelic frontier. And it's very exciting to be able to see where those doors are opening. I think the other, I said I was only going to have two, but I'm going to steal a third. It's okay. (laughs) I think the other thing that psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy has the potential to to do is to make us confront disparate healthcare outcomes, inequity of access to care. If you're lucky enough to be in a place with mental health providers, you're going to have better outcomes than if you live far away and don't have access to those providers. 
if you're lucky enough to have the the money to seek out mental health care that your insurance may not cover, you're going to have better outcomes than someone who doesn't have those resources. And because of the way that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is being structured as a really currently resource-intensive process, I think, again, it's going to force us to confront the issue of what does good care access look like for all Americans and for the whole world. And so I'll be very interested to see what the answer to that question looks like in five to 10 years. And I hope that we and and others can set the foundation to build a culture where equitable access to benefits is not only the goal, but the norm. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you brought that up, Cody. I think it's within the psychedelic realm, I think there's small conversations about accessibility and equitability when it comes to these medicalized treatments. I would like to see more conversation about it, but I'm starting to see the rumblings of it. So like you said, I'm very interested to see what the next five to 10 years brings with that. And hopefully it it comes with expanded access and equitability along with it. All right. So we're pretty much at the end here. One of the last things I always like to ask is, is there anything else that you'd like to say or advice that you'd like to offer or resources or information that you want to provide to our listeners before we sign off? I should mention that the application process for our MS program is open. And we're accepting applications up through July 31st for fall enrollment and through October 31st for spring enrollment. So for individuals interested in the master's program, those are the deadlines. The capstone certificate deadlines are a little bit uh, later than that, mid-August and mid-November, I believe. So if you're interested, go check out the website and please get in touch and apply. Awesome. Thank you, Cody. And again, for our listeners, I'll include those links in the podcast notes. One final question I have is if any of our listeners want to connect with you, what is the best way that they can reach you? Yeah, my email address is wenther at wisc.edu. That's W-E-N-T-H-U-R at wisc.edu. That's great. If you have a specific question about wanting to join our lab or get involved with our research. If you just have a thought and want to share something else, I am on Psychedelic Grad, so you can reach out through your forum. And we have a lab Twitter account. Um, You may get me, you may get a student. Wenther Lab is our Twitter handle. Thank you so much, Cody. I will also be sure to include um, all of that important contact information in the uh, podcast notes. So be sure to check them out if you want to reach out to Cody with any questions. Thank you again so much for joining me today, Cody. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you very much for the invitation and for setting up this community. It's something that didn't exist when I was uh, looking for opportunities. And so it's very exciting to see. Thank you. We're really excited to be able to create a place for community, for academics and professionals in the psychedelic community to come together and network and collaborate. Because like you said, many of us have never had this before. And so we think this is a really valuable resource that will help move the psychedelic field forward. 
and you're very much a part of that now. So thank you for that. (laughs) Doing my best. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed our podcast and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, be sure to jump on over to our Psychedelic Grad community page. You can find the link in the notes below. Also, if you're looking for psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings, you can sign up for the Psychedelic Grad weekly newsletter with the link in the description. Finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review and maybe even a comment. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your co-host, Gabby. Stay curious, and we look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode of Psychedelic Grad's Curious to Serious podcast. Mm -hmm.